You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to have a chance to continue on in First Thessalonians with you uh, this morning. As we put ourselves into this passage and, and try to spend a few moments thinking through what God has for us together, uh, we see ourselves, the church that God has placed in this place. And so as we read and understand the teachings about the church and for the church, we know that that's a message that's for us. It's important for us in our time and our location. And so we put that into practice and understand what God has for us as the church. And so let's pray that God does that work uh, through his word in our time together. God, I ask that you would help us to hear, help us to understand. God, that you would grant us uh, the ability to take these things into our minds and hearts. And God, I pray that you would bring about uh, change and awareness of your work within our presence. We ask that you would do that even this morning. Amen. So as we get into the passage today, we we think about the the big idea uh, for today and, and kind of a title for the section is really about keeping the peace, keeping the peace. So... Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but I remember as a kid growing up, one of the most exciting things to do was to go on a road trip. Didn't matter if it was a couple hours away or a a long multi-day trip of many days, but road trips were were kind of fun, right? You hang out in the car, you you go somewhere cool, but inevitably, as you get into that car situation, uh, there's this need to maintain peace among the kids, right? So I went around with my parents, my, my younger brother, and as we would go on these trips, inevitably, it would start out really great. Everyone's really excited. But after a little while on the road, you know, you start to get a little tension in the car. Uh, that close space, the monotony of mile after mile and waiting for something to happen. So my parents tried to do different things over, over my, my growing up to try to entertain us, right? There were new toys sometimes that we would have. Like, wow, I've never seen that. That'll occupy you for 30 minutes or so maybe. That, that's great. Uh, we had cassette tapes, if you're familiar with those, right? So we'd listen to songs, we'd listen to stories on the road, and have some really fond memories of, like, cool stories, jokes, and things that we listened to that passed the hours uh, that were really cool. We even tried one time, my parents got these things called uh, cassette Walkmen. So if, you, if you're not familiar with what this is, this is like an iPod, but instead of every bit of music in the world being available to you, you had, like, one album, And you would listen to it, and then when you got to the end of it, you had to rewind it in order to listen to it again. So just like an iPod, though. But I remember my brother and I had these, and we each had separate ones so we could have our own taste, and that worked pretty well. We mostly could ignore each other for um, quite a few miles uh, of the road trip. But there's something about that setting, right? You're closely confined, you're in the car, and the peace is hard to maintain. There's questions about space. You kind of get into each other's side, you're pushing against each other, and it often creates not only tension among, say, the children in the back, but you're also getting into mom and dad's space. You're making them have to interact and referee and push back and forth. And all of this that was supposed to be this really fun road trip that was really exciting sometimes becomes kind of a powder keg of the, uh, the lack of peace and the trouble that's there. Well, when we think about our passage for today, it's a, it's a pretty similar story that, uh, that Paul is talking about. He talks about the church, which is a beautiful thing that God has created. But when we get into the church, we also see something that happens. Oftentimes, the close proximity with one another, the longevity of spending time with the same people over and over again, sometimes in very intense and emotional situations, often t- causes friction, 
often causes challenges to peace among us. And so what Paul does is he gives us in here some instructions, some essential understandings of how we are to respond and really keep the peace within the church. So our big idea for today is really a peaceful church is kept through some following essential, by following some essential practices, and we'll get into those. Specifically, there's four important areas for keeping the peace in the church. So if you've shown up today and you say, this is my church and this is where I identify, then you're going to hear these words and you're going to say, look, this is really practical within these four walls, these people that I know, this is for me. Maybe you've come here today and this isn't your church. Maybe you're passing through, you're visiting. Either way, you have an opportunity to understand what God calls you to do in whatever church context that he has put you in. And if you're not yet following Jesus and unsure about this whole church thing, I want you to come in with your eyes wide open and sort of be thinking, okay, there, there is some real life stuff that happens in the church. Why is that the case? Why are there real people here but still trying to follow Jesus in, in kind of some messiness of life? So as we dig into that, we'll, we'll look at these four areas, and let's go ahead and get started in the first one, uh, which is we look at how to maintain the peace. An important area is regarding elders, regarding elders in verses 12 through 13. As we look at these verses, you see very clearly... Uh, He says, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So one of the first questions we have to ask ourselves is the identity of these individuals. Who's being talked about here? So I've already started by saying these are elders, right? Here's how I'm discerning that. Look at what the words are. These are individuals who, uh, that are to be respected, who labor among you, are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. So if I said, if there's a person who rides a red truck who is constantly telling you to stop, drop, and roll, and who puts out fires, you would say that's a firefighter, right? Like, it comes together. Similarly, this description points to elders in particular when it talks about not only ones who are laboring, which could be many, but this emphasis on hierarchy is one of the first elements that we get to see to help identify who it is. And then the constant practice of admonishment puts the elder really in focus here of who the Thessalonian church is to be thinking about. As we acknowledge that labor, that hierarchy, that practice of admonishing, we see that these are elders. And so then one of the main things we have to talk about is how do we get along with our pastor elders in the church? See, often often in the church, in American Christianity, the idea of finding a church does have a lot to do with your pastors, right? As you go in, you, you say, how do I connect? How do I fit with that individual who's leading it? What is my view of that? But the point of that evaluation that we should be making with our pastors and elders and what makes them a good pastor, Paul gives us the criteria that he's looking for. Are they working hard? Are they leading well? And are your elders admonishing you, which is warning or instructing you? Are they doing that in the preaching ministry and in ongoing conversations and in counsel with you? And then assuming your elders are doing that and they're endeavoring to do that, they're trying, what should your responses be as, as people in the church in order to main, ch- maintain peace with one another. Paul gives us that as you, as you look at these words again, verses 12 and 13. Paul says the response to these elders who are doing this work should be three things. You should respect your pastor elders. You should esteem your pastor elders very highly in love because of their work. And you should be at peace with each other, if for no other reason than for the sake of your respect and esteem for your elders. All right? So obviously, this is one of the more awkward things to be standing in front of you and telling you to respect and esteem and love your elders. Like the only thing worse than that is telling you to, to give elders more money, right? Like, so it's, it's a little bit of an awkward situation. 
But what I want to be clear is there's a reason why it doesn't seem overly awkward to me. Number one, God has given us this passage, so we know there's some benefit to it. There's a reason why he wants us to know this. But then secondly, we also know that the, uh, the other impact here is that uh, we are just following through the book of Thessalonians. And as we go passage by passage, we're reminded that these teachings are not specifically chosen for today or someone that's present, but God intends us to take all of his word and find meaning in it, and there's a reason why we might miss this information. So as we think about those activities that we're called to together toward our elders, that, that takes effort. That takes something that we need to do together to ensure that you're in a good response. And if you're t- doing those same practices, having that view of how to get along with your pastors and elders, then you're working toward keeping peace in the church together. So let's see the second essential practice then in verses 14 and 15. If you like a fast-moving sermon, this is great. The verses are all short. It's going to keep us moving. All right, verses 14 and 15 uh, regarding one another. So we see in these verses that really it's not just the elders and your relationship with them. It's also with one another and how we work together there. So Paul builds on this discussion of the elders and talks about the different kinds of us that are there. So in in this passage, we aren't identified by our strength finder categories or our Meyer-Briggs personality types, but we have some categories that we've all probably expressed at one point or another or know someone who's been among us that fits into one of these categories. They are the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. Not the most flattering categories, I understand. But when you think about these, they do often describe where we're at. And sometimes we're not as great as we think we are in our own mind. And um, these often talk about where we're at. So let's, let's understand a little bit about what these categories mean as we think about how to get along with one another and maintain peace in the church. Let's start with the idol. So we have some modern views of this idea of idol, and we'd associate it with words like laziness typically. But the use of this word in ancient times is more closely related to the idea of undisciplined. So it's not just that this is a lazy individual who doesn't do things, um, and that's in view, but also there's plenty of active, busy folks who are also undisciplined for sure. And that's what's in reference here. So the way that we help folks in our midst, people in our church who are undisciplined, is by admonishing them. So this is that same word that was used there of elders, and here is part of the activity that we're using as well. That as we admonish one another, we're warning, we're instructing each other who seem to be caught in undisciplined habits. So when we see undisciplined folks in the church, you help them by seeing the severity of their situation and do your best to help them see the right path for their own good. So that may feel a little different, right? You're keeping the peace by actually telling someone there's something wrong. There's something that they need to change in themselves, right? As Bostonians, we usually think minding your own business is one of the highest ideals of life, right? Uh, we think that if someone around us has different behaviors than us or different beliefs, that oftentimes it's easier to just let them do their own thing, and you're actually being very tolerant and helpful by letting them just do whatever it is that they're doing as long as it doesn't interfere with you directly. I mean, do whatever makes you happy. You do you, right? These are like cardinal views of how to handle that different otherness of people around us. That's not what Paul says to do. Paul says the way to keep this peace is actually to care about that person, to not let them just stay isolated in their bad decisions and their bad track that they're on, but actually step into that life and admonish them, to warn them, instruct them, help them change. Because ultimately keeping the peace is not letting your brother or sister continue in a sinful pattern that they're going to live in. That's actually the right way to deal and help the idol. But then the second group he talks about is, he says we should encourage the faint-hearted. 
the faint-hearted. The Holman Christian Standard Bible uh, translation helps us get a sense of that, that dated word, faint-hearted, and he tra- it's translated as discouraged, discouraged. <clears throat> so you come alongside those who are struggling to keep up, they're straggling, and you encourage those individuals. People who are down, they're discouraged, you come along and encourage them. So it's pretty f- straightforward to explain that. We understand what discouragement is, we understand there's a need to encourage them, so I could keep moving us along, but take a moment to think about our church family, as we're together. If you've been here any length of time, you've probably seen just about everyone here discouraged at one time or another, right? It's true for each of us. We're going to face those challenges, those situations. And so it's important that as a group, as a body together, we're looking for those who are discouraged. We're reaching out. We're helping them along. We're giving them words of encouragement. It'd be very damaging to the peace of the church if we're running along yanking people to snap out of it and suddenly get with the program, but instead lovingly and patiently encouraging and building up those who are discouraged and faint-hearted. That's ultimately how we remain a peaceful church that God has placed us in. Thirdly, he talks about helping the weak, helping the weak. Now, it's easy to say, to say, hey, if you saw me at the Y this morning, you would know I'm not weak, all right? So we're, we're good. Uh, but that's not exactly what he's looking at. While he could be looking at physical, physical strength to some extent, uh, he's also obviously emphasizing uh, spiritual weakness as well. So whether we're ailing physically and hurting, there's also those who are ailing spiritually and having trouble following in obedience and holiness and following Christ. And Paul tells us to help them. The word that he used here for help is carrying this idea of holding firmly or paying attention to someone directly. It's this level of devotion to to people, this idea of connection to those who are weak. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, uses a a key key illustration to talk about serving two masters. He says either we'll love the one and hate the other or else we'll love the one and hate the other, right? He kind of like puts the two-master mentality between each other. You've probably heard these words. And he says, we'll need to hold fast to one. It's the same word that's used here to think of what we're doing with the weak. Jesus would say, you need to hold fast to me. I'm your master. You need to be closely following and aligned with what I think. So when Jesus later in the Gospel of Matthew in, in chapter 25 tries to describe the weak and what he's like, he talks about how those coming around the weak uh, need to be cared for and loved. And as they do that, that's a, a matter of following the master Jesus. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, a church can be a community of peace when we follow the example of Jesus by being devoted to the weak among us, whether physically or spiritually, and serving them and loving them as we are loving and serving to Jesus. So if you read these people, the idle, the discouraged, or or faint-hearted, or the weak, and you don't see the people that you may be having trouble with from time to time in the church as as fitting one of these categories, Paul helps wrap that up in these words, where he says, be patient with them all. That's a pretty good instruction for us, for all the individuals that we interact with in the church. We need to confront them and deal with them in patience. So patience with one another at gospel community, patient with one another in the morning service, patient with one another in Slack, patient with one another in our tracks or on our serve teams, as we're able to continue to give one another patience in these instructions that Paul gives us, we're able to keep the peace at Seven Mile Road. 
The patience that we see here is, is further described for us in verse 15. It's not repaying evil or mistreatment that someone may give you, but it's always seeking to do good to one another and everyone. It's always seeking to do good to one another. If we're all living like this in the church, then we'll be marked as a peaceful place where God is honored and people can truly come and meet Jesus. So we get these key relationships as these two essential areas for us to keep peace in. But as we move on, we see in verses 16 through 18 that there's also matters regarding our worship together, regarding worship together. So as we think about how to approach this, we get kind of three imperatives or commands that are given us in these verses, very straightforwardly. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. The short, punchy commands here get to the heart of what we're doing together often as a body together. We're to be rejoicing always, regardless of circumstances, look to rejoice. Rejoicing is a settled disposition, not just an emotional feeling. Prayer is considered uh, the ongoing and normal behavior of a believer. In at least four of Paul's letters, he talks about praying constantly uh, to the churches that Paul is writing to. And then in giving thanks, it's the mark of one who recognizes a gracious gift that's been given. It's qualified here as in all circumstances. So what a peaceful bunch we would be, right? If we were constantly and perpetually rejoicing, praying, giving thanks, that's a mark that would certainly be felt by all of us on an ongoing basis. So you can think about these three commands and essential parts that we are trying to do on a Sunday as we gather and some of these other contexts where we're meeting together as the people of God. But this is also a remedy of sorts, right? So maybe you are feeling anxious about a relationship with someone in the church or you're unhappy with a fellow believer who's gathered in the church, and you're unsure what to do about it. You're having a tough time. Well, here's your therapy regimen, okay? You start rejoicing. Think of all the things that God has done and all the ways the church has brought healing and change to others, and rejoice. Then pray, and don't stop. Pray for your heart, your emotions, your thoughts, your bitterness toward this individual, and then pray for the person who is frustrating you or you're having difficulty getting along with, and then keep praying. Finally, thank God that, uh, about the times that are going well with many of the other believers in the church and the refreshment that they're giving you to your spirit. Then thank God for the ones that you're having challenges with, right? They're showing your own need, your own bad habits, your own need and dependency on God in order to be sanctified. And ultimately, we can give thanks for all of these things. Pretty certain, myself included here, when you start thinking about when you're frustrated with someone and your response is to think about rejoicing, to then pray for this individual and yourself, and then to turn and give thanks for God to what he's doing, we're going to have a harder time being frustrated for very long. We're going to see the pettiness in sometimes that is exposed in our habits and behaviors, and God will have opportunity to change us through this work of rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. So then we have one more area to focus on to keep the peace in the church that Paul gives us, and it has to do with prophecy in verses 19 through 22. These words then on the screen uh, you have there, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast uh, what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So when we think about prophecy, and there's a lot here that's happening throughout the New Testament uh, with the concept of of prophecy, at the the simplest form, it's someone who has a word from God. Now, we can think of that in the technical sense of someone who has received 
divine inspiration, revelation in some way uh, to be shared, but also a general sense of where that's true. Someone has been prompted by God the Spirit to speak truth and step into your life and share information to you, to tell you, maybe that admonishing that we talked about before, that God has moved on them to tell you, you know what? You're doing the wrong thing here. You need to shift what you're doing. As someone comes to do that to you, if we don't respond rightly to that scenario, there's a way that that brings friction and doesn't bring peace in the church. So Paul helps us understand a little bit more about what's in view here. Prophecies intended for others' edification. It's not to just get something off your back or something off your shoulders that your feeling needs to just come out. Instead, it's knowing the other individual and feeling the need that you need to say something in order to build them up. And then the source of this is the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So how do we maintain peace in these scenarios? Well, in these really quick imperatives that come up, there's five of them here in these short verses. The first one is, don't quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. This emphasizes that we do not extinguish what God the Spirit might be doing. It's quite easy to get very rigid and not be open to what God might be doing in and through another believer who speaks to you. If you are the one who is quick to blow out a candle as soon as it's lit, this might be about you. If you're one who doubts that the legitimacy of someone's uh, spiritual growth or questions the motive of someone's spiritual excitement from time to time, this might be you as well. So guess what? Basically, we need to be thinking the Spirit is still at work in our lives, and he is in the wor- working through the man or woman who might be speaking to you. And God might be using that person, whatever friction they may cause you, whatever challenges and weaknesses you see in their own life, God might be using that individual to prompt you to respond to something that he wants in your life. So we have to be open to that and not quenching what the Spirit might be doing among us. Then secondly, don't despise prophecies. So I can't really dodge prophecies in this passage, right? I have to say something about that. So when we think of prophecy, as I've tried to talk about technical in general, it's a word or oracle given. It's revealed by God through initiative or inspiration of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God moves on one of us to speak of word of truth or application to another believer, another believer it should be received graciously and not with disdain. We have to say the Spirit works through individuals. God speaks to us through the people that we're gathered with. It's one of the great benefits of having a church gathered together, to having so many people in different situations. Each of us, images of God, each of us, individual priests before God, reading our word that he's given us, praying to him, speaking to him. Is it any wonder that God would use one of your brothers and sisters to speak something to you in a way, in a format, in something to get your attention in a different way through their personality, through their relationship, in order to move you on from being stuck in what otherwise would be a sinful pattern that you could continue in. But look, there's two sides to this coin here. It's not that we just patently accept everything out there and gullibly believe everything that's said in the name of God. The Spirit's told me this, I gotta do this, you gotta run there. No, Paul gives us handles to ensure that doesn't happen. He says there's a threefold string of commands here. Test everything, hold fast to the good, and abstain from evil. Test everything, hold fast to the good, abstain from evil. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue, right? But here's the concept. So if you think about it this way, if you've ever had whole fish, ever had one of those, you go grill, you go somewhere nice near the water, you get a whole giant fish 
on a platter, the one with the eyeball and the head and the fish tail off there. You ever had that? Or have you been freaked out by it and you didn't want to ever get that one, right? As you start to get that fish in front of you and it's done well, it's got the herb-crusted stuff going on, some nice lemon over the top, some, some beautiful, warm, fresh fish, whole fish there in front of you. What you do is you take your fork, you kind of slide that over the side of, of the well-cooked-up fish, and you get some of the flaky flesh that comes up, right? And you get to eat that. It tastes amazing. If you've not had it, you've got to, you've got to try this. It's really great fish. You've got to make sure it's fresh, okay? And they've they got to do it right. But as you eat that food, no matter how careful and how, uh, you know, attentive you are, at times you're going to get those little fish bones in your mouth, right? And so when you get one of those fish bones, what do you do? You, like, throw the fish off your table, yell for the waiter. You say, I'm going to do none of this fish thing ever again. Of course not. You reach in, you grab the little fish bone, you set it on your plate, and you keep eating your delicious fish, right? There's some good stuff in there, some good meat. It's really the same thing with the prophecy and the words that we get from other individuals. You don't say, look, the Spirit doesn't do anything through people's lives. I've got to ignore all of it. It's no good. No, you take in the tasty, good bits that are... Up that are accountable, that fit with God's word, that point to what he wants to do in your life, and you receive them as good. Somebody tells you something that occasionally doesn't seem to match with God's word, doesn't really seem the, the way, you don't say, no, oh, the Spirit doesn't tell us what to do. The Spirit's not active in our lives. He doesn't use my brothers and sisters to encourage me. No, that'd be like throwing the fish off the table and yelling for the waiter. Instead, yeah, that was a little bit of a bone. I can ignore that comment. That wasn't particularly fitting with what God has called me to do. Maybe that individual has a misunderstanding of what the situation is in my life. Spit out the bone, receive what's good. That's what we do with the teachings in order to keep the peace. So we can receive those prophecies from one another, those words of the Lord that God may give us as we're in close proximity, reading God's word, speaking to God. He may use us to speak truth into another's life. That, in a nutshell, is how Paul is telling us to deal with prophecy. Don't say you hate it but you got to test and evaluate before you swallow it all. Then enjoy the good bits fully and spit out the bad bits that don't continue uh, on those as well. So we come to really practical application, at least four areas to keep peace maintained in our church. So the point of application is really, which area should you redouble your efforts in to keep the peace? Which of these areas? Do you need to mend your relationship with the elders? Recenter your view and your responses to those who are caring for you? Do you need to think about how you act with your fellow members? Is there a certain response that Paul has called, us, uh, called out in this passage to the idle, the discouraged, the weak, that you need to act on? Or is it that you just need to be a bit more patient with everyone else? Do you need to follow the therapy plan that we talked a little bit about of rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks in order to seek the peace in the church? Would you have less tension and less friction with your brothers and sisters if you merely followed that pattern? <clears throat> and have you been stuffing out the Spirit's work around you? Do you need to take a fish approach to evaluating the spiritual words of others around you so you don't miss the good and don't swallow the bad? <coughs> Not good, sorry. God has given us a beautiful thing in this church. As we think about our relationships, the ways that we love and care for one another. But we need to know it's an active process to maintain the peace together. These are four essential areas where we can do that and ensure that we're practicing peace with one another. Let's pray.